And welcome to Rick or Treat Horrorcast, hosted by yours, Ghoulie, Ricky J. Duarte. My guest this week is a former Fangoria intern. He's been the programmer and head of the screenplay competition of the New York City Horror Film Festival for eight years and running. He's a filmmaker with his creative partner and good friend, Vincent Vinyas, who's had short horror spoofs screen at Genre Blast, Spooky Empire, and Fantasia Film Festival, as well as this year's Nightmares Film Festival. As a writer, his solo and collaborative horror screenplays have won and placed in the first Project Greenlight in 2001, Big Apple Film Festival, Genre Plast, Zed Fest, and Nightmares Film Festival. He's a film reviewer for Gruesome Magazine and Horror News Radio, has spent the last six years as feature film screener for SXSW, has spent seven years as the production associate and promo video editor at Renegade Nation, and for 10 years has been a programmer and Q&A host at Big Apple Film Festival. This man does it all. Probably the most qualified guest I've ever had to be on this show. Please welcome to Rick or Treat Horror Cast, my very talented and wonderful friend, Brian W. Smith. Thanks for having me. Was, uh, I appreciate this. I appreciate uh, being here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to finally have you on the show. I've been wanting to get you on for quite some time now. You and I are friends from Horror Trivia, our monthly horror trivia, and we have created a friendship beyond that that I'm very grateful for. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have a question for you, Brian. Okay. Are you ready for the big giveaway? I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Are you gonna Are you gonna tune in at 9 p.m. and wear your mask? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God! This this movie. Today we are talking about Halloween Three: Season of the Witch, the divisive and controversial and quite frankly batshit crazy sequel in the Halloween series. We'll get to that in a moment, though. But I would love to know a bit about your background. You have quite the resume. What uh, what first got you into working in horror? Uh, truth be told, it was Halloween, the original Halloween. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Carpenter's original, Carpenter and Deborah Hill's original, obviously. Nice. Uh, 1978. But, um, you know, I, I was a late bloomer with horror because I was a scaredy cat as a kid and I was sheltered from a lot of horror stuff. So, you know, I, I missed that, that innocent time of Brian, but uh, yeah, once I saw the, the first Halloween, it scared me so much, I had to know why. And I, so I got into uh, Fangoria. I started reading up on, you know, just the, the behind the scenes of horror movies in general and watching all the behind the scenes stuff. And it was also like, I was an 80s kid. So it was the, it was the era of like thriller and you had like the, uh, the making of thriller and you got to see the sort of the peek behind the curtain. And I think that really helped um, you know, pull pull back the curtain on on what was scaring me and giving me nightmares. I was like, oh, okay, that's it's just it's a craft. It's there's it's like there's magic and skill involved. And I, I still enjoy the feature. My neighbor had it on VHS. We used to watch it. We used to watch it all the time. It's so great, and I I still think about those uh those hard contact lenses. 
pieces that Michael put in and, you know, you tear up when you watch how he had to put those in and all that for that video, but you know, it worked. It, it, yeah. it terrified a generation. <laughs> I always <laughs> you know? loved watching them sitting and eating lunch in their zombie makeup. I thought that was, it, that like molded something in my mind about the magic of, of cinema and the magic of filmmaking, just like it did for you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and uh, my first Fangoria issue was in 88 and that was a pretty good year for horror. It was like, uh, I think we're actually, uh, celebrating like the Halloween four uh, anniversary now. And, uh, you know, it was like Phantasm two, I think Child's Play, The Blob, there was just all these great movies in that one year. And that was like the first issue I had of Fangoria I had was with uh, the tall man melting on the cover it was Phantasm two. And I was like, they're making a sequel. You know, I grew up with Phantasm on TV and uh, it was one of those seventies movies that would come on like on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, completely ruin your day because all those movies had like dark endings. <laughs> And they would they would always play them in the afternoon. But when I saw the tall man on the cover, I was like, oh my god, you know, it's it's, it's there's a sequel, there's more, and that's that sort of opened up the floodgates for all this uh, horror stuff that I'm into now. So, and then I had to go intern for them. Uh, I did that in college when I saw an ad for it. I was like, I got to do that. I, yeah. I, I would have paid the I would have paid them to sit in that office. I was sitting there with uh, <laughs> Mike Gingle and uh, Tony Tampone at the time. It was just the three of us in the small little office. We get to read. Uh, it was 98, so I was reading up on, like, Halloween H2O, and uh, it's funny how, like, Halloween just keeps following me around, but, you yeah. know, it's all part of the, all part of it, but, yeah, it was, like, reading up on uh, the articles before they went to print and helping to proofread and offer uh, uh, some little quotes and uh, little blurbs for their photos and things like that, so, yeah, it was very collaborative, and my name's in the masthead on a few of those issues in that year, so that was a, that was a, a badge of honor at that time, so. That is so cool. I adore Fangoria. What got you into screenwriting specifically? And on top of that, was there, do you have a favorite horror screenplay separate from a horror movie? Is there a screenplay that is your favorite as well? That's a great question. Um, I used to write all the time as a kid. Um, I started, I, I remember it was like after, like in second grade, I was the first to finish uh, like a, a quiz or a test or whatever. And they let me sit in like the library section of the classroom because I was a nerd. Um, and I was, I was in my happy place. I was sitting around books and I just sat down and wrote like some cheesy little, everything, for some reason, everything was like horror related. I think because I, back then, you know, you would see glimpses of horror, uh, elements on like TV ads and newsprint ads. So it always, it found a way to get to you as a kid, you know, you weren't always sheltered. And I think, uh, Poltergeist, we had left an impression on me as a kid because I was, first of all, I wasn't allowed to see it. I was always sent out of the room whenever it was, because they would play it during the day and I was sent out of the room. When I finally saw it, I was like, this is like, it was like a roller coaster. It's like a fun house. And I loved it. And so every like vocabulary composition that I was given in school, I would write about this family that was being haunted by ghosts. You know, that, that was just the same family. Just, I was just so obsessed with that, that and the energy of like poltergeist. And, uh, and then the so I was writing counselor little... had a meeting with your parents and was like, what's going on at home. <laughs> it was a different, it was such a different time back then. Yeah. You could actually express yourself creatively that way. And it was okay. Like I, you know, I would, I would read out, they would let me, they liked my writing so much that they would actually let me read them out in front of class. And they were like horror stories. And, you know, people are it's like a babysitter gets thrown out a window and things are happening and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But they were letting, they were just letting me do it and letting me express myself creatively. And I was like, I mean, the words, they give you 20 words, you have to fit them in a composition. They were there. <laughs> you know, right. I found, a way to, I found a way to use lugubrious in a sentence. So there, there it is. It's impressive. Uh, you know, um, so that was when I, that was when I started writing like short stories. But then the screenplays, really came about after I saw Ed Wood, uh, Tim Burton's film. Hmm. Um, and that was, that was when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with college. 
or, or if I wanted to go to college or what I wanted to major in. And I saw that and I was like, I liked everything about it. It was just, it was just, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a terrible filmmaker, but he had such drive and such uh, ambition. And I was just like, I, I admired it. And I, I liked his whole crew. And I liked that whole idea of just having people just, you know, like this circus of, you know, uh, you know, different people just helping you out and creating this, you know, this art, even if it's bad, but you just put it out there. And uh, yeah, I just signed up for as many film schools as I could. I didn't have a lot of experience with film at that time. I was majoring in accounting in, in high school just because my brother went to the same place. Uh, but by that point, I was like, no, I like film. I like movies. And it was all just there at, at that point. I just needed something to, to push me there. So Ed Wood really sent me on that path. It was just one of those movies that I just loved and, and still love to this day. And uh, yeah, long story short, I, I went. I basically went to college because I was like, okay, I need to learn how to write. That, that's, that's literally the only reason I went to college. I was like, I'll get the degree just to learn how to write, not knowing that there were books that I could have just read right. and probably saved, you know, thousands of dollars. But I still wanted, I wanted the degree anyway. I wanted to do the four-year thing. I had the whole plan. So I did that. And uh, yeah, I, I learned, I mean, I already knew a lot about films just from watching cable and TV and stuff like that. But uh, I made a lot of good friends in college. I'm still in touch with them. And yeah, it was, it was just, it was just the, that's pretty much where it, where it started. And I think, the first script I got was in high school, actually. Uh, it was the Bram Stoker's Dracula book, but it was the script, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola version. Nice. And uh, that was the first time I saw uh, the, the full movie written in script form, but it was written in shooting script form, uh, which I had to quickly unlearn because that's not how you send out a spec script. You, uh, there's a shooting script that's already ready to be produced. And then there's a spec script that's just, you know, you send it out there as the story, but you got the camera angles and all that sort of stuff. I was writing with camera angles. Like I knew okay. how I wanted things to look, but you had to strip it all of that. But it was a cool book. It was just it had the script in it, it had the, the imagery and the costumes and all the back behind the scenes stuff. And so that really put me on that path. So I like in terms of learning the, the format. And then I had to unlearn that basically when I learned about specs and stuff like that. And, and then that led to Project Greenlight. The first season, it was a contest, you know, to get on the show. And uh, my writing partner and I, uh, we wrote a horror script that got in we made it to the top 30. So we were close. Um, and uh, we got like a free DVD. It was, you know, for the time, it was great. It was a free DVD player and a copy of Goodwill Hunting because it was through the, the Miramax guys or whatever. Got it. And uh, and a baseball cap, I think. Uh, so that was like, that was like a big deal for us, you know, at the, but that that just kept us going. So it's a script that we've been uh, sent putting out there and we have other scripts that we've been submitting. And, you know, that's the long story of it. But it just, I love writing. I love scripts and years later uh scream i think is one of my favorite spec scripts that that got out there and i tell horror writers and anyone who's going to review for uh the new york city horror film festival for the script i say check out scream check out the blob uh by frank darabon i think these are good scripts that are on the page are very visceral and uh, tightly written and just you can see the movie and see you know uh why they're such uh, long-lasting films and uh yeah I, I i'd love to read something that's great on the page where you can see the movie and visualize it get it that it that it could, it could be something really special in the theater you know that's incredible when i when i was about to start writing my this is my first screenplay i asked you should i take screenwriting classes and you just sent me a pdf of the screen screen screenplay it was like <laughs> no this is all you need to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean believe it and, and that was that was for a while that was like my harry potter it was like uh uh i read that script and i was so enamored right i love the movie first of all and I, I saw the script it was published and then you know i might have gotten my hands on like the leaked scream 2 script when it came out my a friend of mine had it for me i was like give it give it to me 
and we were on a road trip and I read the whole thing cover to cover. There's, you know, obviously some changes from uh, the script to the screen that they, they, they had to change, but it's all there. Like it, that was when I learned about like a writer's voice, you know, and, and it's all there. Kevin Williams' voice is on the page and how the characters interact and how he lures you in as a reader and, and, and puts the suspense on the page. And he knows he has a great director working for him, you know, at the time. So it's like, he just, he just lays it out lays out the set pieces and lets Wes do what he has to do. But it's, it's there. It was that great collaboration of writer and, and director. And um, I, I miss Wes Craven every day, you know, when I, when I watch a horror film that doesn't do it for me, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's where we are. But I, I hope that, you know, there's, there's some really good up and coming horror directors that are out there and, and making waves. They're maybe not getting uh, as much publicity as others, but, you know, I think on the end, on the independent side, that's where festivals like New York City Horror come in and, uh, you know, international festivals as well, like Fantasia. And um, I want to say uh, South by Southwest is the festival you're reading out. SW, that's South by Southwest. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, they, they find, they champion like independent horror films and, and genre material where there really wasn't a place for it at one point. So, you know. That's I couldn't agree more. And I, I love discovering and looking into unknown artists. I'm a big fan of watching short, like short horror movies on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I, I recently sent in a pitch to write about this at a publication, but like, I feel like it's almost filmmaking in its f- purest form because it's, it's when the creator has complete control over what they're doing. They're not answering to a studio. They're not answering to test screenings. It's just like, we have very little money and we have very little time to tell this story. How do we get in, tell a story and get out? And uh, I, I think it's cool that a lot of short filmmakers, you know, are getting work. Uh, is it Rob Savage who uh, did yeah. host and, and uh, we've got Smile based on the short and um, talk to me from the the two guys who, why can't I think of them? The Philippu brothers. Um, right, right. Yeah. But well, you know, speaking of festivals, uh, why don't we move into recommendations? I love to talk about horror that we have recently consumed, be it books or movies, TV, video games, music, anything like that. You recently attended the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. Did you catch anything interesting? Uh, Yeah, I saw one of the shorts blocks. Um, It was a head trip shorts blocks. A filmmaker I know, A.K. Espada, had a short film in there. And uh, she's a really talented filmmaker. So I, I liked one of her previous shorts, uh, This Is Our Home. And so I wanted to see her latest one. And it's a very personal um, uh, sort of twist on sort of the vampire genre, but it, it comes from a, like a really a dark place from her that she, she had admitted. And um, then I saw the, um, what's it called? Uh, Where the Devil Roams by the Adams Family. Uh, it's cool. uh, John Adams, Zelda Adams, and Toby Poser. And I've been a fan of theirs for a couple of years now. They actually screened, uh, I think, I think this is, I want to say this is their third feature. They've done a lot, of, they do a lot of shorts and a lot of creative work here and there, but I think this is like their third, like solid feature. Uh, they had submitted The Deeper You Dig uh, to New York City Horror Film Festival. And I think, I do believe we select, we, they were an official selection, uh, Shutter swooped in and got them. Oh, damn. Uh, so we're like, oh, we're never going to see them again but no i've, I've loved their films ever since uh but they're kind of in shutters have talked about so you know good good for them i mean they've been they've been really just in that short amount of time they've been really branching out our uh like hellbender was their, their second film yep and this new one uh where the devil roams i just i love what they do it's it's they they just have their finger on the pulse of like that folk horror that a lot, a lot of people try to emulate but for some reason 
they're getting it. It's it's it feels textured and real, and there's it's it, it could have been easy for us to just dismiss uh, DPU dig and say, oh, it's it's too rough around the edges, whatever. But there was just something about it that was undeniable, and I put it in my review to the other judges. I was like, check this one out. There's something here. There's you know, it's got an ind independent style, and we all like we all love it. So it's great to see them, you know, uh, you know, going forward with their their work. And I'm I'm here for whatever they do next. Um, and I also saw uh, Jen Wexler's latest film, The Sacrifice Game. Uh, okay. Jen Wexler, she made The Ranger, uh, which was produced by a friend of mine, Heather Buckley, and uh, Heather's also involved with this film. And Jen wrote this, uh, co-wrote this with a partner, um, Sean Redlitz. Um, and it's it's she described it as uh, Last House on the Left meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, that was how she described it for the movie, and uh, yeah, it's it's got those it has those elements. It's you know it's pretty hardcore and, and rough in in some ways in terms of like what the characters have to endure. I won't that the less you know about it, the better. But I really admire like the the production value, the uh, the sound, the setting. They make really good use of this uh, massive setting. It's set in an all girls school, but it's over Christmas, and so it's like limited cast, and you know it's got this tension you know throughout. But um, like I said, the Less you know, the better. But I, I'm really hoping to see her do more, um, especially after, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers out there who are allowed to fail upwards with, you know, big franchises. And you see when you go to a smaller festival or an indie festival and you see these filmmakers doing really great work, you're like, why aren't they working? You know, why aren't they getting bigger budgets and stuff? So I really hope that Jen uh, and the Adams family, I hope to see what they do going forward, um, because it's 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 always rough to watch years go by where filmmakers are you know, they're proving themselves constantly and putting really good work out there, but they're constantly overlooked, uh, you know, by the by the studios and who are putting out films that are just disappointing people. Not mentioning yeah. any movies <laughs> in general, but you can probably uh, guess. Not um, mentioning a movie that's in theaters right now that everybody <laughs> fucking hated. <laughs> not, not Maybe a requel of a beloved film that didn't not, need a continuation of its story. I don't not know. Not mentioning it, but I mean, you know, there are, there are, I've seen, there are so many directors that I can name, you know, Claudia Cuno and, uh, who, you know, yeah. finally did a feature with Watcher, and but I'd seen her film. years back, and yeah, I'd seen her shorts back then, and um, you know, and and you mentioned Smile before, like uh, you know, Parker Finn. I mean, he's he's working with Paramount now, which is great. We had screened his film The Hide Behind years back, and we were like, uh, we loved his work ever since then. So it's it's cool to see short films being sort of becoming like the new gateway into like feature work. It wasn't always like that. It was you know, short films were just sort of like, oh, it's a short film, whatever, right? You know, make your feature. Now short films are becoming like a real mainstay at festivals, you know, where we're programming whole blocks now for that because people love those little short bites and stuff and Hulu's picking them up and, and Alter and that sort of thing. So it's really expanding the creative landscape. Um, one more of the film that I'll recommend that I think is, is in one theater in New York, if anyone's listening, uh, is When Evil Lurks. Oh my God, uh, I was hoping the, you would talk about this one. Go on. Uh, yeah, it's just a film that I, I saw it. I was like one of three people in the theater. I think two of them were probably staff members on break. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's one of those films where like the sound was great. It's, it's, a, it's from the director, um, uh, Damien Rejna, I want to say is his name, uh, it's, uh, Argentine. Uh, director of Terrified from 2017, Ter not Terrifier, Terrified. Uh, and that was a film that when I saw that on Shudder, I was telling everyone, oh my God, if you have Shudder, if you watch anything, watch Terrified. It's great. It's a you know, really cool horror film. That's just one of those, I call it a top shelf horror film. Like I know it's, I know the experience that I, I had watching it. it. It frightened me. It was great. It was amazing. I'll watch it. I'll watch it again. You know, it's not one of those films I can just throw on and, and clean the house or do it. You know, it's, it's one of those films where I know it's good. I'll, I'll just have to set aside a, a time to watch it, but I always recommend people see it. 
And we, when Able Learn is like that too, I think, you know, it's, it's got some exciting stuff in it and, and it's, he goes there with, uh, with, with um, the horror and, and you're expecting that it, it's, it's stuff that I was expecting in that other recall that we all mentioned. Um, and here it is in this film where there's only three people in the audience, you know, I'm right. like, Oh my God, go see it in the theater. See it. I think it hits shutter. Um, either this, I think it's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, I think Jen Wexler's sacrifice game hits shutter in December. And I believe where the devil realms is also with shutter as well. So that I'm not sure. I forgot when that's coming up, but these are all, yeah, these are all films to keep an eye out for and be inspired by, I think. Yeah. You know? I tried to make it to a theater to see when evil lurks on your recommendation and I couldn't get to it in time. I think it's still showing on one screen in Astoria. If it's, still I think showing... it's at IFC at, in down, like downtown. Oh, no shit. So Yeah. I saw it. I Googled it and it was, yeah, I think it's the IFC like 11 o'clock screen. So, Oh, you know what? I mean, I have to work early in the morning, but I might just say fuck it and go see a late night movie if I can, because I'm, I'm dying Tonight, to see but, Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. How long it learned. I was surprised to see it, but yeah, today, uh, 11, 10. Great. I'm in. I'm going. I'm going. Uh, all right. Well, I have some recommendations as well. First off, I want to say a great big thank you to Terror Vision, the haunted house in Times Square for sending me through. It was an invitation. I, I'm not, you know, this, this podcast I adore and I love it. It's still very much small potatoes, but it, it, every once in a while, I'll get these really cool, fun perks that uh, come along. And I was invited uh, as a quote influencer to experience this haunted house. And they allowed me to videotape my reactions walking through and my incredible social media manager stanley martin put together a scream count so he took 20 minutes of me walking through haunted houses and packed it into like 90 seconds of me just screaming like an idiot it's a lot of fun to watch but i i cannot recommend this haunted house enough i used to work haunted houses grow uh, when i was younger in phoenix they called me the scary fairy back then and i had the blast like i had the best time walking through with a couple of my friends when this episode comes out, you're only going to have a few more nights to go check it out. But if you're in New York City and you listen to this on time in time, please go check out Terror Vision. I, I do think it, haunted houses are an expensive ticket. And we all know that this one was much longer than I anticipated it to be. And very well crafted. Good storytelling that's not overbearing. You don't have to follow a story too tightly. It's just you know what's happening and that's all that it takes. And uh, the actors were... <laughs> really good. And it was about midway through the month, which I think is a good time because they're finding their scares. They're kind of figuring out, you know, uh, you, you don't want to go maybe like the first week because they don't know when to jump out or what to say that's going to creep you out. But by by mid month, they should have a good thing going. And they definitely did. So I had a blast. Thank you, Terravision. Highly recommend. Um, and then I also, so as far as other new stuff, every October, I kind of rewatched the same October movies over and over every year. So, you know, Sleepy Hollow by Tim Burton. To me, in my opinion, that's the last good Tim Burton movie there. I said it. I think it could be 20 minutes shorter and still be just as good. <laughs> um, but you know what I did watch the other night and I watch this every year. It's Mad Monster Party. Have you seen it, Brian? I've never seen it. I've seen clips of it. I know it's it's like puppets or stop motion. Or it's, something, yeah, Rankin or? Bass, who did like the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, all the stop motion from the 60s. So this is their mm -hmm. Halloween film. It's 1967. Uh, Phyllis Diller plays the monster's bride. <laughs> Boris Karloff plays Dr. Frankenstein. And it is a delight. It's just a silly musical. It might be a little too long. I think it's a great movie. Like sit down and watch it with the sound on. But also like if you're throwing a Halloween party, put this on and like just have it in the background. 
you know, because it's charming. It's really cute. It's spooky. Actually, Hotel Transylvania, that movie with um, Adam Sandler, I which I actually like the Hotel Transylvania movies. But anyway, completely ripped this movie off, like down to some of the costuming. Uh, And then, all right, I'll recommend one more thing. This is um, it's not new, but it is newer. And it was new to me. 2018 Braid. It's a movie directed by Mitzi Perone or Perone. She is Italian. Uh, it stars Madeline Brewer, Emojin Waterhouse, and Sarah Hay. And it's about, just as the title suggests, Braid, you take three strands and intertwine them. And it's about these three women who their lives are so wrapped around each other, they can't escape each other. And it's not a perfect movie. It took me on a journey. I think it's really well acted and it's really beautiful to look at. I don't think it quite stuck the landing that maybe it was trying to but I thought it was a really interesting premise and it was a really interesting take on kind of domestic gender roles and perhaps a woman's inability to escape assigned gender roles. I just thought it was a really cool take from a really female like forward perspective. So braid. I think I saw that one at Tribeca. I was looking it up. Um, I think I did. Yeah, I did see that one. I, and I remember the director described it as sort of like a fever dream. Yeah. Um, you know, it has its own sort of like dream logic. I couldn't tell you what the plot was, really what was going on, but I get when she said that, I was like, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think it's that's it's a cool. it's a recommend. It's for sure. It's not going to, um, you know, I won't say it won't change your life. It didn't change mine, but I enjoyed it and I appreciated mm-hmm. it and I recommend it. Cool. But enough of recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into a movie that i'm not sure if either of us recommend we'll get to that at the end but what do you what do you say we talk about halloween three season of the witch let's go trick-or-treating okay let's go hey spookies this month Rick or Treat horror cast has teamed up with terror vision new york city's largest and most terrifying haunted house Set in the heart of New York City, Terror Vision beckons the bravest souls to step beyond the mundane and into the sprawling 20,000 square foot labyrinth of dread. With three uniquely themed haunted houses, over 140 actors are ready to bring your deepest fears to life. Prepare to be a part of the chilling narrative that promises to be more than mere scares. It offers a descent into horror's true artistry. The folks at TerrorVision were kind enough to invite me to attend the haunt and record my reactions. If you want to catch a video of me screaming my face off, check them out at Terror Haunt on social media. The haunt is open through November 5th, and tickets can be found at facetheterror.com. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, written by Tommy Lee Wallace, which is a funny story, right? The screenplay for this film was originally written by Nigel Neal, a quite popular uh, British screenwriter. And when the studio forced him to go in and add more gore and make it more vicious and violent, he purposely removed his name from the credits he is uncredited as a writer john carpenter then took a pass at this movie still uncredited tweaked it a little bit i think his influence is very apparent Mm -hmm. and then to carpenter's surprise tommy lee wallace took a pass at it as well so tommy lee wallace is the sole credited screenwriter but there are three known that worked on it Uh, our dp is dean cundy and you can tell i think this movie is really beautiful to look at i think it's extremely well shot i think it's a well-directed film i think it's a well-acted film 
it's kind of the last big hurrah. Well, I was looking at the credits. It's like the last big hurrah of the original Halloween yeah. team, basically. Yeah, well, once you see Dean Cundy's name, I'm like, oh, okay. Visually, it's going to be, it's the, it's going to have that Dean Cundy and the John Carpenter vibe, you know, and Tom Lee Wallace was part of their whole team for since the beginning. So, yeah, yeah it has that that feel, you know. It, it really does. It feels like it belongs with Halloween, even though it has nothing to do with the original original Halloween. Well, not nothing, very little to do with the original Halloween. Uh, produced right. by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Essentially, John Carpenter never wanted to make a sequel to Halloween, but the studio beckoned him. He obliged, ended up writing it and directing some of the sequences and killed off Michael and Dr. Loomis at the end of Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. The end. Done. No more Michael Myers. And to John Carpenter's way of thinking, there was just no reason to continue that story. So his idea was then to come back with Halloween 3 as an anthology. And Brian, I know you know this, but not everybody does. And so they wrote a brand new story about Halloween, the holiday. And from there, every sequel to follow would have been a different story not connected to the one before. And audiences hated that. (laughs) (laughs) hated it hated it i think it was a noble idea i can see completely and i can support it and frankly was it miramax that just got they just outbid a24 for the tv rights for how the halloween series right yeah yeah i kind of wish that they would go this route with a, a inevitable tv series and maybe tie in michael every once in a while like people need to see michael clearly but um i don't know man it's it's not the worst idea. This film has ideas. Um, yes. And, I'll, and, and I appreciated, like, for example, you know, you sit, I imagine sitting in a theater, you're, you're a fan of Halloween 1, 2, the Myers fan, you sit in a theater and it's like, okay, the opening scene is, the opening credits are actually pretty cool with the, yeah. the slow reveal of the, the jack-o'-lantern and all that sort of stuff. And so it's, it's, a, it's hinting at where the story is going to go. Uh, ultimately, I feel like, the I, I don't know if it, the execution quite worked in terms, and I can see why audiences kind of would turn on it. You know, I, I know you're going to go deeper into the story, but yeah, overall, I feel like it, it it doesn't quite deliver on what you would think of as a Halloween film, you know, in, in terms of, there, have, there are little Myers-esque scares, and, and but they're few and far between, you know, with the stingers and that sort of thing, but overall it, it, the pacing i think is an issue and maybe the character motivation or something something's not quite gelling and i could see like by the end credits i could picture i've been in an audience you know where uh the, the audience will just go you know boo <laughs> you know i can, I can, movie, I, can yeah. I can sense it you know i can, I can sense it while i revisited it today and i'm like yeah i can see this not quite working if you're expecting one thing getting this um but the anthology idea is a noble one and i think that it would be interesting. There, there are a lot of stories in the Halloween universe. I think they can expand, and I'm sure they're gonna. You know, if, if someone wants to, you know, pay me for some story ideas, that'd be great. I would love that. I want that for you. But I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I think uh, there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of ideas to to play around with, and the film, the aesthetic of the Halloween masks are enduring, and and especially the the theme song, you know, that that we still reference, you know, on, on, I'm, I'm guessing. But in two days on the 23rd and then, you know, on on Halloween, uh, eight more days and then happy Halloween. So, yeah, I, I think it, it has elements that are that are there and it has a larger story that's interesting. I think the way it's set up, maybe, uh, you know, or maybe the characters, if they reverse roles, you'll, you'll get into it in the plot description. But 
uh, you know, I think the motivations are a little different in the characters and maybe it, they just flipped it, <laughs> made, you know, because one I think has more of a personal stake than the other, but, you know, it's very, it's very pulpy. It's very, it, like a pulp, like, like a pulp novel. That's exactly, so, you literally just listed like half of, half of my own personal notes about this movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pacing is the biggest thing for me. It feels, I'm going to make some of my listeners upset by saying this, watching this movie feels like a chore to me. Right. I, I, sitting down. Cause you know, every, every time I do an episode, I watch the film at least twice mm-hmm. right before I record, you know, the first time I sit and enjoy it. Second time I take my detailed notes mm-hmm. and I've really realized that the majority of times, and I've seen this movie multiple times, the majority of times that I've seen it, it's kind of on in the background while I'm doing something else. And right. so to have to sit down and pay attention to it, <laughs> and you know, I put my phone in the other room. I don't want to be distracted. I want to give myself to this movie before I record a podcast episode about it. But like, fuck, dude, <laughs> this is, it's a slog. I, um, yeah. I, I do agree with you. The iconography of this movie, the look of it, these masks, like I love the three masks. You're wearing them on your t-shirt right now. I think they're great, right? We've got the skull mask, we've got the jack-o'-lantern mask, and we've got the green witch mask. And they've just mm-hmm. kind of embedded the embedded themselves into the fabric of horror fandom, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the the trailer, you know, I grew up uh, afraid of the trailer because it's just a teaser of just the witch face uh, yes. swirling and coming out of the darkness. So I didn't know what it was about, but you know, back then I think there was like also like the satanic panic, like, oh, it's a movie about witches. You know, so I had this like there's something about it, like a mythology behind it. And then when you hear, start to hear, oh, there's no Michael Myers and it's not really scary and things like that, that travels along with the film. And yeah, it's it definitely, I had just recently gone to like, uh, it was a paperbacks from hell presentation. Uh, uh, Grady Hendrix, the author, had did like a presentation on, on his book and uh, talking about all the different pulp novels from like the 70s and 80s. And this reminded me of one of those uh, novels where it's just sort of like, you, you know, you have stock, I'm sorry to say, but I mean, you, you know, good actors, but you have like stock characters. Yes. And stock motivations. And they just met and she's mourning and they, they suddenly fall in love. And I'm like, that just took me right out. <laughs> like, yes. Work. It was, you know, it's some of the worst that. dialogue I've ever heard in my life. It was, it was so like, oh man, this doesn't work at all. You know, like, no. and so you have, and then you just have to sort of go with the rest of the story and try to believe that this, these two are, in love or what i don't know it was just like well, that was weird it was very like it was very of its time you know it's like you know i don't know it just, it just I, I, have a little, anyway. I have a little bit of a theory about why it happened so fast that that we're going to get to i was going to save this comment for the end but mm-hmm. for me this movie feels like an extended episode of hammer house of horror have you ever watched that show it's like, no, no. Like maybe early 80s british anthology tv show so hmm. kind of like every episode was a brand new different story like tales from the crypt or like you know um twilight zone but they have a very british like set in british culture feel and this being kind of the original screenwriter being a british man i can't get that out of my head right it feels like this movie's too long like it could have been a one hour episode of a tv show yeah because by the time the things that we know about this film the notorious moments of with the mask and stuff if they i think feel like they come too late yes to re, you know to, to really feel anything and um it's just yeah there's a lot of there's i know there's a ticking clock of like the days are, are we're getting to halloween but there needs to be more buildup within those moments right now it's just sort of like you know she loses her father and 
feels you know feels like something for like two minutes and then that's it and then it's okay yeah. where, where we're going from here but then it's not her story it's more tom atkins story and it's like he doesn't really have the personal stake in it he was just not at all sort of there in fact and he's so, avoiding yeah. his family like he's right, to right. shack and, up and it's, with this younger and, woman in a seedy motel <laughs> his family involved his family including uh uh joshua miller from from near dark i didn't realize that's that's a young josh miller from near dark who went on to co-write final girls no kidding um yeah yeah oh, i was like wild. i know that kid um i don't i didn't recognize the daughter but yeah i was like that was so weird and yeah, that was so funny and um and they have annie of course uh, nancy guys yeah. uh did they gray up her hair did they deliberately make her look like a matron because only like a few years ago that she did halloween you know <laughs> so we're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna talk about her just female representation in general in this movie absolutely yeah i think without deborah hill's contribution even though she's producing, I think without without her contribution in the writing, there's issues, you know, Com- that you can see. It's like- Completely. Well, let's. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about that then. Uh, mm-hmm. The the cast. Tom Atkins, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. kind of he's such a um. Not, I, I don't know, not like an alpha man, but he's a very maybe like a every man, every man, kind of a every man, Reynolds yeah. type. Maybe like a like a direct to video Burt Reynolds, you know. <laughs> I think he's definitely uh, John Carpenter. It's either Tom Atkins or Kurt Russell, but it's like John Carpenter has like his avatars, his muses that he puts in his movies yes. to represent his voice. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Well, he's he, like he's supposed to be like the everyman. You know? I, 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 you know, a, a note that I made is that this character, Doctor Daniel Chalice, the idea behind him reminds me of Roddy Piper's character in They Live. Uh, the okay. just the very kind of. I, uh, this is what a man is and everyone should right. want to be like this man. He gets the girl and he's tough, but he's nice right. and he's passionate and he's driven and he's brave. And it's, it's, it, it for me, they kind of live on the same street a little bit. Right. Uh, it, it's a little bit of, I, I guess it's a John Carpenter thing in some that comes through in some of his movies about kind of the working man and his, you know, I guess the everyman, just like you said. Well, it's a very, yeah, it's a very, 80s you know yeah. it's that holdover boomer kind of era of like you know oh he's just it's like okay it's one thing he's flirting with the nurse but then i think he pinches her and i was like okay we just pinches her ass <laughs> and then he, right, he like yeah. kisses the, uh, the, the, the assistant and, later like you know they have a history I'm assuming he's yeah i'm assuming he hooked up with her too so it's just like, sort of like that's what that's where the pulp aspect comes in it's like right. okay this was written by you know this is <laughs> you know it was just funny it was just interesting to see that pre-era before it now we're yeah. a little more conscious of that but back then it was just like wait a minute that right. did not fly with hr you know so we have yeah. stacy nelkin playing ellie grimbridge dan mm-hmm. o'herley as connell cochran nancy mm-hmm. keys or nancy loomis as linda chalice and garn stevens as marge who was actually tom atkins's wife at the time of shooting okay which I think is pretty cool. Uh, shot on a budget of four point six million, it brought in fourteen point four million. Now the reviews I mentioned, Roger Ebert put this on his most hated movies list. Uh, he called it a low rent thriller from the first frame, mentioning that it's assembled out of familiar parts from other better movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vincent Canby of the New York Times commented Halloween 3 manages the not-so-easy feat of being anti-children, anti-capitalism, anti-television, and anti-Irish all at the same time. In other (laughs) reviews, it is referred to as a hopelessly jumbled mess and deeply flawed. I think that the movie tries to comment, you know, we're in the middle of kind of the Reaganomics 
and uh, uh, media kind of blowing up and having more direct access through television at your fingertips. Now, if this movie were made, it would be about social media, right? That's how right. that's how the warlock would would kill children, basically, which actually <laughs> might be a more interesting movie. It, it, kind of going with this feeling of television rots your brain. I think that that was a concern on parents' minds at the time. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we go ahead and and, uh, and get into the plot of this movie, yeah? So we start with the traditional Mustafa Akkad presents, of course, the, grandf- the godfather of the Halloween series. And these digital orange lines assemble, kind of stacking on top of each other. We hear John Carpenter's synth music. He, he scored this film. These orange lines, as you mentioned, form a jack-o'-lantern. And I think it's kind of a cool way to do the same opening sequence as the first two Halloweens, right? The, the mm-hmm. zoom in on a jack-o'-lantern. I think it's a cool way to, to make it a digital modern rendition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally meant to include the big Halloween three. So the, all three masks, but they ended up just doing the jack-o'-lantern. I like it the way that it is. It feels like it ties it in somehow to the first two movies. What I don't like is that the opening credits are in italics. And I don't know why that bothers me so much. <laughs> it just looks silly to me anyway so we cut to it's saturday the 23rd of october and we see a man running through the night he's carrying a jack-o'-lantern halloween mask while synth music is building and he's being chased by a car he hides in a junkyard and then he backs into a man in a suit wearing black leather gloves who strangles him he grabs a train and uh it, the chain kind of unblocks a wheel on a car and that car rolls down and pins the man between the two cars. Our guy grabs the mask and he keeps running. Cut to an hour later and it's raining at a gas station. The attendant watches a news report about Stonehenge and a slab of it being missing, which will come in later and cause a lot of confusion. A note uh, that the newscaster mentions before he changes the channel, you know, stay tuned and we'll tell you what you can do about junk mail, which I think we then feed into this commercial by Silver Shamrock, which I think is establishing this idea of junk mail being inundated with ads, being inundated with ways to purchase and buy things. This commercial is now iconic. As you mentioned, the theme song set to the song London Bridge is Falling Down because it's in public domain. And it's irritating as hell. Brian, this song plays 14 times. I love it. Do you really? It's the best part of, it's the, best part of the movie. It's the, it's the only <laughs> thing that wakes it's, it's what wakes you up. It does. No, that's true. You're absolutely and right. And it's actually in the, now that you mention it, it's actually in the trailer. I think they sing London Bridge is falling down and with the witch face showing up. Sure. I think that's in the teaser. Yeah. Well, instead of the traditional lyrics, we hear eight more, <laughs> eight more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. And we see the three masks that Silver Shamrock sells. So Silver Shamrock is a novelty company, essentially, that sells these Halloween masks. Like I mentioned, a skull, a jack-o'-lantern, and a witch. Did you notice, right before the gas station attendant turns off the TV, it's showing the three masks, and then the Michael Myers mask appears as well on the screen? I didn't see that. So I didn't either until I watched it on a YouTube channel (laughs) about this movie, it's the brief implication, blink and you miss it, 
that Silver Shamrock also produces the white Michael Myers mask. I think they've been trying to tie that together for for a while, but no one's been able to do anything. Like there's been so many there's so many hints layered throughout the universe of this you know series. We'll probably it'll probably tie back at some point. It was supposed to be word on the street is that it was supposed to be included in Halloween Ends, and David Gordon Green wanted to include that. Yeah, the radio tower would be a part of it, and the film would conclude with the Silver Shamrock Factory manufacturing Michael masks, which would have been Mm. a where they come from, b commenting on society's obsession with true crime murderers. But anyway, the studio chickened out because Halloween Three was such a failure, and he was not allowed to do that. But he did put the closing credits in the same blue font in italics as Halloween (laughs) Three. Oh yeah, they've been parallel. Yeah. So the 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 announcer on the on the commercial says they're fun they're frightening and they glow in the dark this is actually the voice of director tommy lee wallace now our guy the old man who's running away from these silent killers appears uh in a state of fear and he's perhaps having a heart attack or a stroke and he grabs the gas station attendant and he's muttering they're coming they're coming before he passes out still clutching that jack-o'-lantern mask gas station attendant carts him off in a tow truck while a man in a suit watches them drive away. We cut to Tom Atkins, Dr. Chalice, arriving at his ex-wife's house, played by Nancy Keys. And, you know, you brought up that they made her look matronly, and I gotta say, she comes off as the meanest, bitchiest ex-wife imaginable. And she's villainized, but, like, she's going through it. Tom Atkins is not providing any sort of help with these children. He just kind of nonchalantly walks in, tries to give these kids plastic retro looking Halloween masks, but it turns out their mom has actually purchased them the silver shamrock masks already. And she just lays it on him. And I think that she is written unfairly because she has every right to be mad at him for not showing up for these kids. Right. And that's my piece. I think she used to be with Tommy Lee Wallace, right? They used to date. They, I believe they were married at the time, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yes, she looks frumpy. She looks, I mean, I don't know how old she was when she filmed Halloween. I think they were all in their late 20s, right? Um, but she looks a good 10 years older than she did just a few years before. <laughs> right, it's ridiculous. It's almost ridiculous. It's like the hair clearly looks like the cobwebs, you know, that you get from, you know, Party City or something yeah. or the gray, the gray spray or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, so the Shamrock uh, Silver Shamrock commercial comes on the TV and the kids sit directly in front of it wearing their masks listening to this song. Now, Dr. Chalice gets paged to the hospital. Linda, his wife, is pissed. He leaves anyway. The gas station attendant at the hospital explains that he brought the man in. He was just trying to help. And on a TV in the background, the Silver Shamrock commercial comes on again. And the old man hears it and he wakes up and he mutters, they're going to kill us, all of us. Chalice prescribes him Thorazine, which I thought was interesting because that's what Dr. Loomis had been giving Michael Myers in the original Halloween to keep him sedated. So the old man is stabilized. He's still clutching his mask for some reason. They still let him hold on to it while he's in his hospital bed. As you mentioned, Chalice is flirty with the nurse. He pinches her ass. They have a good rapport, but it's like, this is a professional work environment. How is he getting away with this? Suddenly, a well-dressed and emotionless man in leather gloves walks into the room. And I'm not going to say that I'm proud of this, but there's something about these like emotionless men in suits with leather, leather gloves that kind of does it for me. 
<laughs> I don't know what it is and something's wrong with me, but I'm in therapy. So I'm sure I'll get to it soon. <laughs> this was the scene that I, uh, as a kid, accidentally saw um, while just channel surfing. So that was my initial impression of this movie was uh, the, the scene that's about to happen in the hospital room. That's a rough that was, one. I was, way too, I was way too young to see that. And that's what how, I old, how old do you think you were? Oh gosh, uh, probably less than uh, probably ten, definitely. You know. Yeah, I yeah. think I was about but the same just, age when I saw this. That was my impressionable years, and I was just like, "Why? Why is he doing that to his eyes?" <laughs> well, the well-dressed, emotionless man in leather gloves does take his thumb and forefinger and reach into the old man's eye sockets wraps his fingers around the inside of his nose and pulls the bridge of his nose up and out. And it's, it's, yeah. it's rough. It looks good. It's there. Yeah. It's a really great effect, but like the sound, the snap sound effect is terrible when he takes his fingers out of the eye socket. What remains is so gross and, and yeah. weird looking. And then just seeing this guy wipe the, residue off of his gloves onto the hospital curtain by the bed there's something about mm -hmm. that the color of it it's like not just blood it's like brown it's got like fluids and brain in it it's gross and it's that carpenter uh efficiency that that sort of you know clinical way of like you know very myers uh quality where it's just very simple it's done it's efficient and it's then he's out you know yeah that's also very chilling. <laughs> That's a good point. He doesn't draw these kills out. They all happen quickly and solidly. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point that I don't think I've ever noticed about Carpenter. So that jackalier mask has fallen to the floor. The nurse walks into the room and the suited man just walks past her. She screams and Chalice wakes up from a nap. And he follows this man to the parking lot. And this man sits down in a car, which is the same car as Christine actually, which was going to be uh, John Carpenter's next project. Huh. He claims there's no no connection. <laughs> this uh, emotionless man pours gasoline all over himself, lights a match, and the car explodes. Chalice calls his ex-wife, who's mad because he won't pick up the kids like he said that he would. He said he has to deal with these two deaths and promises to pick the kids up on Saturday. Hangs up on her, essentially. The old man's daughter comes to identify the body. So this is going to be Ellie. And she is warned not to look at the body and she says, let's just get it over with. And she is shocked, shocked at what she sees. <laughs> Understandably so. The police uh, sheriff kind of belittles her a little bit and shuts her down and is like, you go get some rest. You're hysterical and I'll have more answers for you later. He does imply that it might've been someone on drugs who did this to her father. We cut to Wednesday, the 27th and a medical analyst assistant named Teddy says that the, you know, backs up the sheriff thinks that it was a man on drugs. Uh, it would take an insane amount of strength to pull someone's skull apart like that. Chalice asks her to investigate herself separately from the police reports. And he puts an arm around her as they walk away. There's a brief kiss. There's a history there. He's, been you know he's shagged her he's flirting with a nurse <laughs> cut to friday the 29th chalice is sitting in a bar watching tv i kind of love this scene he changes the channel behind the bar to a commercial that's showing an ad for the original movie halloween the announcer calls it the immortal classic and we get a cameo by michael myers it's a clip from the original halloween 
And we are told that Halloween will be followed by the big giveaway at nine brought to you by Silver Shamrock. And then they play the fucking song again. Two more days till Halloween this time. Chalice has the bartender change the channel again and it's sports. He's not interested in Halloween at all. So Brian, how do you feel about this movie making the original Halloween just a movie? Like it doesn't exist in the real world. I'm sure it was probably weird for people at the time. Um, I mean, I think it's a cute little nod. It's probably one of the, I wouldn't say it's the first, but it's probably one of those, you know, rare occasions back in the day when they were referencing their own franchise within the movie. Yeah, like meta when people weren't doing meta. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, anytime to hear the theme music is great. Um, but it is weird because I think overall the film itself doesn't necessarily, del- it reminds you of another movie that was better. A movie you'd rather be watching. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like, I don't know if it's really, if it really helps to remind people of that because it's, this film lacks that's what i realized when you mentioned it's it is kind of a slog but it it lacks the scares or it lacks the tension or the paranoia that they could have really used they could have done like a, i know they were trying to do maybe like a body snatchers type of thing but it needs kind of tension because right. if the stakes aren't raised in any way then you're just sort of the characters just sort of sleepwalking their way through that's kind of how it feels like. yeah i think it does fans a disservice to show a movie that they came here to see and then also establish that it's just a movie and that was not something that actually happened in this universe you know right kind of i think it's a clever but when you overthink it like i have it's it's a bad choice (laughs) so ellie the daughter of the old man comes and sits next to chalice at the bar she introduces herself they get to talking chalice says he thinks that there's something odd going on here ellie brings him to her father's general store He's been selling the big Halloween three masks, the silver shamrock masks. And they take a look at his kind of schedule or his log. And it states that on October 20th, he had to pick up more masks in person, but he didn't follow through with any of his plans after that on his schedule. So Ellie thinks that something bad happened to him between here and Santa Mira, where the masks are made. She's not going to go back to LA until she finds out what happened to her father. So silver shamrock, factory is in santa mira which funny that you should bring up invasion of the body snatchers is the fictional california town that invasion of the body snatchers took place in so it is a purposeful uh, reference okay they just lacked attention completely <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe maybe they needed more people involved maybe he needed like a friend or you know you always need that co- that confidant character and yeah it's if he and stacy you're gonna you know be the main characters and they're they're Oh, you need someone else who's endangered or something, you know? Yeah. No. <laughs> Chalice is calling his ex-wife on a payphone. The plaza that they shot this in is the plaza in Halloween 2 when they're walking to the car and the one young girl is like, but you promised to drive me home. Same shooting location for what it's worth. Oh, wow. You remember that actress is uh, Wendy from Prom Night. No shit? It's like, yeah, it's all these like little... That's old, cool. Uh, worlds colliding, yeah, yeah. Which also starred Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So Chalice is talking to his ex-wife on the phone. He's saying he can't pick the kids up and he lies and says it's a doctor's meeting and he won't give her the name of the motel. He can't remember the name and he'll call her on Monday, hangs up on her. We see he's holding a six pack of beer and he hops in the car with Ellie. So this man is completely shirking any responsibility over his children to go shack up with this younger, strange woman that he's never met with a six pack of beer in a motel room somewhere. And we are expected to like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, or or understand their dynamic in any way. You know? Right, right. Camera pans to a window at an electronics store, and it's showing the commercial for Silver Shamrock again. Now they drive to Santa Mira, and Chalice explains the history of the town. I don't know where he's reading this from. In 1982, it was taken over by Cochrane, who turned it into a manufacturing town for Silver Shamrock masks. It's a predominantly Irish town, used to be like a kind of a dairy town, but very recently was taken over by Silver Shamrock, owned by Cochrane. Now, as they pull into town, everyone's watching them and staring through windows and um, just watching them drive through. Ellie remarks that she feels like she's a goldfish, and we see a surveillance camera following their car as it drives through the town. So they stop, and they decide it's going to be a good idea to get a motel room, so they actually have a private place to talk where people aren't watching them. As Ellie checks into the room, Chalice sneaks into the office to check the log. Very reminiscent of Psycho. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Looking for Marion Crane's name. He does see her father's name, Harry Grimbridge, on the log. Now, the motel owner comments to Ellie that Cochran is driving past in a very fancy car. This nice car is driving past, slows down to watch them. He calls him a great man and a true genius. Then a massive, obnoxious RV pulls into the parking lot. And Buddy Kupfer and his wife Betty get out, spill out, and their brat of a son named Little Buddy just hops on his bike and rides it off. The mom screams, don't get, don't go into the street. And he gives her the finger. (laughs) And then a woman pulls up and in a huff gets out of her car. The damn factory got their orders all screwed up. Now I have to stay in this dump again. And that's going to be Marge, who we'll meet Mm -hmm. in a little bit. Turn, You know, that's Tom Atkins' wife in real life. These are all like Sims characters. They are very much like Sims characters. They are very um, NPCs, non-playable characters in a video game. Right. Right. Right? They are as surface as can be. They serve no purpose except to inevitably die. Spoiler. (laughs) And they don't drive the plot. They are caricatures of people. Right. That's a great point. Sims character. (laughs) They have one emotion at a time, and that's it. (laughs) chalice tells ellie in their room that her dad did stay there on the 20th and then they have this weird conversation where they decide it's appropriate and for the best to share a room people might think it's weird if he gets a separate room and you know if you'd feel more comfortable i could sleep in the car and she just turns to him and says where do you want to sleep dr chalice he says that's a dumb question miss grimbridge and then they kiss and it's out of nowhere. It makes no sense, but you know, three dudes wrote it. So, you know, three dudes wrote it. That's absolutely <laughs> it. I, my theory is also that because her father just died and he is so much older, there's like a daddy, a, a search for a daddy going on here as well. Maybe, but I, I think it's just, it's, it was of the time. Like if they had given them 10 minutes or 20 minutes of, you know, movie time, build the relationship but it's just sort of like that james bond type of thing you know that's exactly it instantly <laughs> now we're now we're an item right yeah which i'm gonna say you know it happens i'm sure you know it happens but i mean like in the movie in the context of the movie in the context of her character just grieving like a day or so ago i don't know how you know a couple of days i mean there's uh, a shot of her crying in the hallway and that's all the grieving we see right <laughs> At 6 p.m., we hear an announcer over loudspeakers all over the town. This is actually the voice of Jamie Lee Curtis, as it turns out. And she is announcing a 6 p.m. curfew. 
Everyone get in your homes, keep your activities limited to indoors. And we see all across town doors are locking. Someone pulls their cat inside. Windows are closing. Blinds are going down. The town is shutting down. We see surveillance cameras scanning the town in night vision. Chalice exits a liquor store. How the fuck is a liquor store open past curfew? (laughs) Explain it. You can't. He's frightened by a local drunk who asks for a drink and badmouths Silver Shamrock and Cochran, the owner. He Mm. mentions that Cochran brought in every factory worker from outside and refused to hire locals. He mentions that he's probably watching Chalice on the cameras right now. And he also mentions rumors about the factory and that he himself plans to burn it down. So now he's drunkenly muttering, he's going to get Molotov cocktails and this will be their last Halloween for them. And he stumbles off through a junkyard. He's singing two more days till Halloween, drinking out of a bottle when he is overtaken by two suits. And he starts, he immediately freaking out and apologizing. I was just kidding. I didn't mean any of it, but he's forced down to his knees. It's a very homoerotic shot. I don't think it's intentional, but I've seen this in many porn. One of them is holding his shoulders down while the other one grabs his head and pulls it off. And it looks fucking great. Yeah. There's like a blood spurt and he's done for. And you, now that you've said these kills are very clinical and fast, I can't get it out of my head. And I, I do think that the kills in this movie are very effective. I, I think that's why they, they always like, the, you know, that Carpenter style has always endured more so than, when you try to make like for example like a Myers brutal and gruesome it's like it takes away from the strength of it it's like oh he's just swift and he knows where to go and kill you know and the dead yeah whereas you know later films it's like oh he's got to like carve them up and you know make them worse and, you know. right which is not so anything that's, that that's he Jason made. that's yeah that's Jason or Art the Clown it's not Michael Michael is efficient and moves on yep now back at the motel Ellie meets Marge Gutman outside in the parking lot who asks if she's picking up an order of masks. And Ellie is instantly, oh yeah, sure, yeah, that's why we're here, of course, we're picking up an order. Marge mentions that ever since Silver Shamrock started doing big volume, the little guy has to wait in line. This town sucks. She gave up on ordering by mail. She hates dealing in person, you just can't win. Now she also mentions that the merch is slipping. The trademark fell off of one of her masks and that shouldn't be happening, the quality sucks. We get a pointless shot of Ellie getting out of the shower naked. We don't see anything, but it comes out of nowhere. Meanwhile, Marge is getting into bed with a book and that logo, the silver shamrock logo that had fallen off of a mask falls onto her floor. Now, Chalice calls Teddy, the medical analyst assistant, who mentions that they're looking through pieces of the car for human remains to try to get information about who might have, the car that exploded, I mean, to find out who might have, you know, killed Ellie's father. Uh, She suspects that someone must have mixed up the sample envelopes because she's not seeing any remains. Chalice brings in ice and booze to the motel room. I think this guy has a drinking problem. (laughs) Uh, He and Ellie kiss and then they make love. He goes immediately to nursing on her breast. And if I'm just going to go back to my, she has daddy issues moment, I'm going to say that he has mommy issues moment nursing on her breast because he's like, completely shoving his ex-wife away right. and going toward this younger girl. Am I overthinking this? I remember even as a as a kid remembering, I was like, he was old. <laughs> you know, I just always remember as a kid, I was like, she seemed more closer to my age. 
<laughs> even back when I was younger, I was just like, this seems, they, they don't seem to have any chemistry. Well, he um, asks her, how old are you? And she says, relax, right. I'm older than I look. Right, yeah, so and everything about it is just like, it's kind of cringy. They comment on the age difference and just throw an answer away, you know? So, But it was so, again, it was so part of the culture and movies back then, but you look at it now through today's eyes and it's very cringy. And <laughs> Very cringy. We cut to Marge in bed. Uh, reading, and then she notices, oh, that silver shamrock logo is on the floor. So she bends down to pick it up, and she starts scratching at the back of it. The back of it looks like a computer chip. And she grabs a bobby pin out of her hair and starts picking at it, and suddenly, a blue laser shoots out of the chip and kind of like shoots her right in the mouth. <laughs> and we see, this, so if you, if the no, the bridge of the nose kill was the one that stuck with you, this is the one that stuck with me. Her mouth has exploded outwards, uh, lips kind of torn apart and curled with like her teeth doing the same thing. And uh, she's still alive and her, her teeth yeah. or her feet are kind of kicking under the blanket. I love that shot. It's really like, it grosses me out more. Yeah. I think more than the face is the feet kicking and she's squirming around and then a bug crawls out of her mouth. The mask, like the appliance on the face does not look super real, but it's a really cool design. It's effective enough, I think, because it, yeah. again, it's it's not a movie or even a film series that's known for visceral gruesomeness. So when it shows it to you, it's like, oh, that's that stands out that, you know, that's pretty gruesome. And I think it's it was after Scanners. So maybe they were uh, kind of competing with that kind of thing because it has that kind of Cronenberg. Definitely. The film itself has a Cronenberg coldness to it for sure it's a super super cold movie a few hours later chalice and ellie hear a car pull up they wake up they get out of bed we see tom atkins's ass as he pulls his pants on and here's another plot hole he has no ass whatsoever but then when he puts jeans on his ass looks great and i don't know how they did it <laughs> <laughs> there are men in lab coats loading marge into the back of a silver shamrock van she's got a blanket over her like a, a sheet over her and the motel owner mentions that she'll get the best care possible. Cochran is in charge. You know, Cochran pulls up in a vehicle and he says, we have the most marvelous facility at the factory for emergency treatment. And he asks one of the lab coats what, what happened kind of off to the side. The lab coat says, misfire. Cochran looks annoyed, but he gets in the car and drives away with the van. Mm -hmm. Ellie and Chalice have overheard this misfire comment. They go back to their room. They want to leave, but Ellie says not until we find out what happened to her father. So now it's Saturday and the town wakes up to a factory whistle blowing. Chalice calls Teddy, who still can't find any indication of a body in the car. No teeth, no bone fragments, nothing. Chalice asks her to look into Connell Cochran, who runs Silver Shamrock, and she agrees to, but it'll cost some serious dinners when you get back. This woman wants him so bad. When he hangs up and walks away, we see a bug device under the desk, like a listening device oh. where he's made the phone call. So the phone is tapped. Chalice and Ellie go to the factory. They're being watched as they walk in by someone in a suit. And they talk to the woman who runs the order records. They're told that her father did pick up the order on the 21st. They're kind of under the guise of buyers who have lost an order, right? That's how they're getting the information. She says that the order was picked up. So her father did check into a motel. He did go to the factory to pick up this order. The Cupfer family, the obnoxious RV family enter and Cochran himself enters and greets them. We learn that Cupfer has sold more masks by far than anyone else in the country. 
Chalice introduces him and Ellie as the Smiths. They're a married couple. And Cochran tells them that Marge has been flown to San Francisco for treatment. She's re- um, and he's replacing their missing order. And everyone in the room claps. And it's very much like everyone worships this Cochran fellow. It's very revered. Cochran offers the Cupfers a guided tour, who then asks if his friends, the Smiths, can come along. And Cochran reluctantly obliges. So we get a backstage tour of Silver Shamrock facilities. We see the mask being made, latex being hand poured into molds, painting, etc. And then we enter the quote Hall of Fame. We see a bunch of old mechanical toys, maybe from like the early 1900s. Cupford tells Chalice that Cochrane is the king of prank toys, and he used to make all of these mechanical toys. Little buddy. Cupfer's son is uh, given a mask that's been through final processing. So it's implied that final processing is when it gets the SS, the silver shamrock logo on it. And Cupfer asks, can I see the final process? But he's told it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you know, a couple of trade secrets. He has denied a tour as it involves volatile chemicals. It's very dangerous. Mrs. Cupfer mentions to Ellie that Cochran is one of the richest men in the country. And he got that way selling cheap gags and Halloween masks. And then she remarks, there's hope for us yet, which I think is a little sad. And it feeds into the anti-capitalism themes of this film. The idea of work, 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 work. And you're finally going to get recognized. Mm -hmm. A little bit implied that she's never going to be as rich as Cochran. Mm -hmm. Chalice notices a suit watching and he grabs Ellie insists that they got to go. But as they walk away, Ellie in a garage, she sees essentially her father's car and kind of blows their cover and starts to run over to it. But she stopped by two yeah. suits. <laughs> I was <laughs> so, not happy with her in that moment. <laughs> no, completely blew their cover. They go back to the motel and she starts packing and they want to leave immediately and they want to call the police. Chalice mentions this place has to fall under somebody's jurisdiction. He goes to the office to make a phone call. He can't get through. The operator is Jamie Lee Curtis's voice again. He tries a couple <laughs> different numbers, can't get through. And then the Silver Shamrock commercial plays on the tv in the office now it's saying one more day till halloween when chalice returns to the motel room the door is open and ellie is missing and there are suits lined up outside the room he closes the door and escapes through the bathroom window as the suits bust in now we get in my opinion and i i like the score to this film we get an obnoxious fucking synth repetitive like high-pitched ding 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 noise that lasts a good three minutes As Chalice runs through the night, a lot like Harry was running at the beginning, Ellie's father. And he's dodging cars and, you know, hiding behind fences. And the the whole operation is looking for him. He sees a car pull into a garage. They pull Ellie out of the back seat and then they close the garage door. So he tries to make another phone call on a payphone. Still no luck. Jamie Lee Curtis tells him no. Chalice sneaks into the factory where the masks line the walls. He's trying to avoid the surveillance cameras and sneaks into a room marked private. This is where the movie takes a tonal shift. And I I don't know how I feel about this next moment. He sneaks into a room marked private, and in this room is a creepy old woman knitting. Oh, right. right. And her face is in the shadows, and he asks this woman, where's the girl? And he shakes the old woman, but her head falls off to revere, like, kind of old-timey gears turning. And it turns out that she is, like, an automation She's a a mechanical, a giant mechanical toy, basically. The suit comes up behind him, and it's actually Dick Warlock, who played Michael Myers in the second Halloween film. 
Chalice throws a punch yep. and the guy is unresponsive. And I like, I actually like Tom's response where he's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus. Like he suddenly puts it all together. These, these emotionless men in suits are fucking robots, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you fight a robot? There's a struggle, there's a tumble. And then he punches this, this suit in the torso and he pulls out this orange goo and a bunch of wires. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a cool moment. The goo starts to seep out of, out of the guy's mouth. They actually use orange juice concentrate as this robot goo. He's then apprehended by multiple suits and Cochrane. Cochrane calls him Dr. Chalice, so he knows who he is. He knows he's not Mr. Smith and uh, remarks that it'll be morning soon. Halloween morning should be a busy day for me. And being a medical man, you should find it quite interesting. And now decides to divulge his entire plan and all of his secrets to Chalice in a very lengthy sequence. As villains do. As as villains do. He more than monologues. This is like his entire life story. We're brought into the facility and Cochrane says, we're using advanced and ancient technology. A good magician never explains, but you'll have time to figure it all out for yourself. And we pan across the facility and we see the missing slab from Stonehenge and lots of computers and lots of masks. We've got a few of the guys in lab coats are chipping away at the slab from Stonehenge. Cochrane you know, explains an ancient sacrificial circle, Stonehenge. Uh, we had a time getting it here. You wouldn't believe how we did it. And then he moves on. He never mentions, right? <laughs> There's no explanation about how they got it across the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't have the budget. Across the United States. <laughs> to show the boat. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. Try me. I would, would have, love to. It would have worked in the UK probably, but you know. Right. If this were set somewhere in the UK, it might have worked. Yeah. He mentions that Stonehenge has a power in it, a force. Even a particle is devastating. Here's my thing, Brian. If only a particle is devastating and they have only chipped away at just a few little sections of this slab from Stonehenge, why the fuck did they need to bring the entire piece over? Oh, a lot of, a lot of children. But this is the day of the mass destruction. They're not going to need any more of it. They've only used three small, like three little tiny, like chunks from it. <laughs> I just want answers. And I don't understand why this movie is so celebrated right now. Oh yeah. There are people who will die on the vine for this movie. And I wanted to understand that, but I don't. So I can, I could, I could say it's not a, Bad movie. We'll get into that when we we'll get into do our review, it. But you know, yeah, yeah. I'm prepared to lose some listeners over this, and I don't want to. I, I hope you'll stay with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, we see Ellie over a surveillance camera, and she's been tied to a table, and Marge's corpse also covered in a sheet. And uh, so now, Chalice understands she's she was killed. Cochran shows a demonstration of his plan as the Cupfer family are brought into a testing room. And it's been decorated to look like kind of like a common living room. And they don't know that they're locked in. Cochran says, all right, roll it. And the commercial plays on the TV in the test room. And now the commercial is saying, it's time. It's time. It's time for the big giveaway. And it instructs the kids to put on their masks and gather around the TV set. Watch the magic pumpkin. Watch, watch. And the TV flashes this pumpkin back and forth between that and a white screen. And the mom starts laughing. It's a little ridiculous to her. She's been obnoxious and probably drunk the whole time. But then the kid who's sitting in front of the TV wearing his mask 
starts to grab his head in pain. And this all happens quicker than I always remember it to. He falls to the floor and insects begin to crawl out of his rotten, mushy head. The mom passes out. Snakes begin to slither out of his head and a fucking rattlesnake comes out of it. The dad is screaming and he's trying to get out, but the door is locked and then he's bitten by the rattlesnake and falls to the ground dead. All while that annoying synthy music is still playing. We learn this is Cochrane's plan. At 9 p.m., the big giveaway is going to be that all the children in America put their masks on, sit down in front of the TV, and then their heads will turn into mushy bugs and snakes. Mm. We get a montage of cities all over America celebrating Halloween. Dayton, Ohio, New York, Baton Rouge, Los Angeles, uh, all over. There's a van driving around announcing children Hurry home, it's time for the big giveaway. We see Chalice's kids sitting in front of the TV wearing their masks. And then we cut to the super iconic shot of a sunset over Phoenix. And growing up as a child in Phoenix, I thought this was really cool because movies don't get made in Phoenix, you know? And it actually looks like it's over Phoenix. I don't know why it was such a like cool moment as a kid, but it's the iconic silhouette of kids trick-or-treating with this, the orange sunset behind them. Kind of an iconic shot from the. I mean, you know, it has that. It's, it's the movie has like imagery that, you know, has endured through the years. Yeah, and I think I mean, that's it, one of those shots. I think it might be on the poster. But it's, it's essentially it's the poster. The poster is kind of like a take on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a great shot for sure. Uh, Teddy tries to call the motel. You know, we're back to the medical assistant, and it, she, she's playing to like music. She, she's listening to like easy listening Muzak on the radio, which I think is super effective during the sequence. She can't get through to the motel. The call is not being completed as dialed. Uh, she's basically found a piece in, you know, the, this car ash that she's sifting through that does not look like a car part. And a suit appears behind her and grabs a drill out of a drawer of tools. And this drill has a massive drill bit. And suddenly she seems for somehow to put two and two together and she begins to call the sheriff when the suit grabs her and throws her to the ground and forces the drill into her ear. And then that elevator music continues to play. I think I find it to be super effective. We don't see the drill go into her head. It's behind his back, but we see, you know, when you're like drilling into a wall and suddenly you get to a point where the drill just pushes through, mm -hmm. we see that happen and it's, I think it's a great, great. It's yeah, it's good in uh, again. It's that Myers, uh, that Carpenter style of suggestive, you know, or I think it probably would have been more. Not, not, not that I'm sadistic. It would have been stronger to actually see maybe con we would have probably seen contact nowadays, like a for quick sure. shot of it, just for that visceral shock effect. But it still works for its time, you know, because uh, when they just leave, he just leaves her there. It has that lasting moment, you know, lasting effect. Yeah. I read that, that, the, that the, the stunt man that first filmed it actually injured her. Like he he hit her with a drill by mistake. Oh, so then Tommy Lee Wallace took over, and so it's him who does the final blow on film uh, because oh, okay. he didn't he didn't trust anybody else to <laughs> do it after she was injured. Wow, gotta be careful, yeah. I know. So we cut back to Silver Shamrock. Chalice is tied to a chair in a room with a TV. Uh, the uh, Cochran tells him, "Don't forget to watch the big giveaway." And then Cochrane gives this really um, well-delivered monologue. I actually love his performance, and I wish that he were a villain in a better movie. 
because I think he's pretty interesting. I we don't get. I think he's the best character in the film. Yeah, which is, you know that's a lot because you know. I, I th- this whole third act is telling and not showing, and that's a real bummer because mm-hmm. I think it might have worked a little bit better if it weren't just this is this is why I'm doing this. This is where we got the evil. This is where magic comes from, and it, it's it's a lot of over explaining. Mm-hmm and nothing fucking happening. He, he explains the difference between Samhain and Halloween. Samhain is uh, a Celtic festival. It was the start of the year in the old Celtic lands. The barriers would be down between the real and the unreal. The dead walk amongst them. They used to sacrifice animals and children. It was just part of their world, their craft. And then Chalice says, witchcraft. But it was a way of controlling their environment. It's not so different mm-hmm. now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things. The planets do. They're in alignment, and it's time again. Do you think that Cochrane was around since these old Celtic days 3,000 years ago? It's implied, but it's not explicitly said. Because he also mentions when he finds the gra- the old knitting granny robot head, like, oh, she was from 1782. I'll have to find a replacement. Like, did he make her? <laughs> what do you think? Possibly because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff left to our imagination in terms of how is he making the drones, how is he cloning? You know, if he's a, I guess the the, impl- the implication that he's a toy maker, but also with a little bit of magic, in pl- as well. I guess they're not really explaining it, but it's to to have his drones sort of walking around and be robots or toys essentially, and and I guess I'm assuming Motown. Um, I guess it's implied that he's he's been around for a while because he's not he doesn't react like a human, especially at the end. None of them do. No. Um, he just sort of acts like, oh, this this is happening. Maybe maybe it's happened once before, and you know he's he's used to it or something. But yeah, yeah. Know, he didn't he didn't act like he was really in a panic that this is the this is it. I think he. I don't know. It's it's a weird. It was a weird final image, final look. But he's still the best character in the whole movie. Absolutely <laughs> you know, is. At least there was someone with uh, motivation. <laughs> the only one with motivation. <laughs> he puts one of the skull masks on Chalice and turns on the TV and the movie Halloween is playing. So A, this is our second showing of the original Halloween movie. B, we now know because the movie on TV is almost over that we are nearing nine o'clock. I do think that's a clever device to kind of show us where, how far we are until the big giveaway. There are, there are worse ways to go too. So. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> All right, so Cochrane leaves the room he's under surveillance but he scoots the chair over to the tv and he kicks out the screen with his feet he uses a piece of the broken glass to cut his restraints this is all very convenient yeah they could have left the drone in there (laughs) well man this i at the end of this i had a list of plot holes but i'm just gonna say this now like why didn't he kill him hours ago right why is he why is he leaving him alive why is he explaining any of this to him all right so suddenly (laughs) Luckily, nobody is looking at the surveillance cameras right now. And he frees himself and he throws his skull mask over the camera. So it's blocked. And he uses this time to escape through an air vent. So Chalice finds a phone. He tries to call his wife, but he has to speak really, really quietly. And she won't listen to him because she is portrayed as a raging bitch. (laughs) She's she's a plot convenience. Yep. She's completely unfairly written. She tells him to go to hell hangs up on him. He finds Ellie. She's tied to that table. He unties her and he is found out on surveillance. So now the suits are heading his way. 
he and Ellie are running down a hallway. It's a really cool use of shadow down a hallway of the suits coming. It's it's very Dean Cundy. It's just a cool, I do like the way that this last sequence looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get to the room, the the final phase room uh, with the giant slab of, of Stonehenge. And in order to hide from everybody, they get behind a rack of masks and they just wheel it across the background. <laughs> like they're in a fucking episode of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> what are what good are these masks going to do hiding you if they're moving on their own? So while they're hiding behind a stack of boxes, he notices that one of them is filled with those logos with the computer chips in them with the little particle of Stonehenge. So he grabs the box and he sneaks over to the computers when nobody is looking and he starts pushing buttons everywhere, causing some chaos. One of the buttons activates the commercial on the computer screens. And it's that final commercial that's supposed to activate the masks. It's time, it's time, time for the big giveaway. Chalice grabs the box and he runs upstairs to the catwalks above this facility. Suits are following him up the stairs and he dumps the chips over the computers right when they're activated by the commercial. So they start exploding, sparks everywhere. And this kind of powers down all of the robots. Something that I noticed on this final watch is that the computers are arranged in a circle like Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. And it makes a little more sense. And I can't believe that it's not something that I n- never noticed before. Orange goo is coming out of the, the suit's mouths. Uh, Cochran sees this happen. And as the commercial rages on and on and the jack-o'-lanterns are flashing all over the screen, the slab of Stonehenge begins to emit a glow. And then this circle of computers in the shape of Stonehenge forms a connective laser with it. And Cochran is standing in the middle of that. And he is in the crossfire between and destroyed in a very bizarre way. It becomes a snow cone or something. That's That's it. It's it's kind of digitalized. It's kind of, I don't, but he, like you mentioned, embraces this fate almost matter of factly. Maybe like he'll be back. Mm -hmm. Maybe like he's done this before. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of Cochran. Or do we think he, is it implied, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but is it, it's not implied that he somehow goes, because he's it, it's coming at him from both ends. Yeah. So it's like, is he becoming one with the whole program, the single, the signal? Because it, if it's not able to stop at the end and he keeps it going or? He could be. I don't know. No, he could, he, he could be because just he turns into this kind of white, not pixelated, but grainy figure. Yeah. I wonder if that's meant to imply that he goes into the TV somehow, but they, they it just wasn't, didn't make it into the script. I think that's an think, explanation. Yeah, I think we're overthinking it. I think, You're right. <laughs> I think we're trying to make more sense of it. <laughs> Everything catches on fire, and Ellie and Chalice drive away as the factory burns to the ground in the background. Chalice turns on the car radio looking for the news. It's 8 48 p.m. The Silver Shamrock commercial comes on. He's like, We got to do something, we got to call somebody, and Ellie doesn't respond. And suddenly her face is very blank and emotionless and she grabs his face and starts like pulling at it and trying to kill him. And the car wrecks into a tree and we realize she's a fucking robot. He stumbles out of the car. The trunk is popped open in the wreck. He can see her hand and arm are attached to the door handle. And then from behind him, she comes up and grabs him by the neck. There's a struggle. He grabs a crowbar out of the trunk and whacks her head off with it. She falls to the ground. I love the shot of her head next to her body and her eyes yeah. are just scanning, like looking around. I do think that looks cool. You can totally tell how it was done, but it, it I looks was just, good. Yeah, I was just thinking, oh, okay, so they buried her and they put the, they have a fake body there. And, yep. yep. You know. <laughs> Whatever. 
And then comically, she jump scares at least two or three times for like body parts. Just she's like the fucking Terminator. Yeah, it's oh, it's a little ridiculous. And my only gripe with this, in terms of like the way her character was handled, you know, it's a it's a bad thing if your audience is wondering was she always a robot because she was much of a character to begin with. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, there's no real there's no real emotional change there. It's like, oh no, not her. You don't feel a different you don't feel a change no. this is how she's always you know performed not a, not a slight against the, the actors i think it's just the way the character's written she's just underwritten it should be her story it should be more devastating that she becomes a robot but it's like oh she's a robot now, how did that happen I have yeah. no <laughs> it's just it's just that's just part of the plot and we have to go with it that's exactly so it right really you know and it, it do you think she was a robot the whole time i don't think she was meant to be but it doesn't make sense it doesn't make it either way. It doesn't really make sense. Like, how did they do it? They they undressed her. They put her clothes back on. Or what she was? Uh, the theory could be that she was a robot the whole time, but I don't know why she would why. Because <laughs> it you know was it to I don't know. Yeah. Why would they lure him specifically using a robot? Why would they lure him to the factory to destroy the whole thing? None of it works. None of this works. No. No. All right, so like you said, she keeps coming at him. The arm at one point attacks him. Yeah. So he runs away, comes upon a gas, the gas station from the beginning of the movie. And Mm -hmm. the same gas station attendant from before recognizes him. And suddenly, for somehow, Chalice is on the phone with the head of broadcasting in America. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who's begging, 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 turn off this commercial. So the nine o'clock commercial has officially started. We get three children pulling up in a car wearing the three silver shamrock masks. Trick or treat. Who the fuck trick or treats at a gas station in the middle of nowhere? They're taking candy from the gas station attendant wearing the mask. They get in front of the TV. Chalice begs, you have to turn off the commercial. The TV channel turns it off. Sorry, we're having problems. The kid changes the channel. The commercial is on again. They turn the commercial off. The kid changes the channel again and the commercial won't turn off. And Chalice is begging, stop it, stop it, stop it, over and over and over again while the jack-o'-lantern is flashing and this obnoxious synth music is playing. His final stop it is delivered into the camera. And it's very much like the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers when he says, you're next, you're next. Yep. Yep. That's the end of the movie. And, I, and like I said, in my head, I could just hear a New York audience going, ooh, <laughs> you know, or feeling kind of like, eh, you know, whatever it was. Now, was there, were three channel, there were three channels. Um, was each channel meant to represent a different mask or was it just that they just had three channels and that was for a wider reach? I wasn't sure. That's an interesting, I didn't they had three channels. interesting point because there's a point when it, the commercial plays on the radio. The number three is is used a lot in the movie. You'll see the, it written all over the place. Um, okay. I guess I hadn't also put together there are three channels as well. And it's the third movie. I don't know. I wonder if there's a significance to that. Yeah, I could see that. I could see it being purposeful for sure. We're left yeah. wondering, did the third channel turn it off in time or not originally the credits were supposed to not have any music and just be the sounds of children screaming while the credits rolled oh interesting wow they really uh <laughs> wow i know interesting. 
I know. Here's my deal with that. If you have worked this hard to make such a mean-spirited and narcissistic and hateful movie, you may as well have just stuck the landing with screaming children. Right. <laughs> that man, that would have been man. Someone's gonna pick that up. Someone's gonna remake this or something and, and use that because that's horrifying. For sure. Tom Atkins, wow. he believes that he was able to stop it in time. That's what he says at conventions. That that hmm. all of his work was was not in vain, but I've always gotten the impression that he isn't able to stop it and that children all yeah, across America I, are turned into mush. That's what I figured. Yeah. If it's, if it's going Twilight Zone anthology route, then he probably, he most likely failed. But if there's maybe if there's a channel per mask, maybe only a portion of a fraction of them. I don't know. Right. I don't know. I don't think they thought that that way through, but I think it, it, maybe it was just meant to be a dark ending. Totally. But speaking of things not making sense, a film critic named Jim Harper remarked, any plot dependent on stealing a chunk of Stonehenge and shipping it secretly across the Atlantic is going to be shaky from the start. And then he, he makes this point. There are four time zones across the United States. The Western seaboard had literally four hours to get the fatal curse-induced advertisement off the air. This was not a good plan. Like, Cochran would have run this at 9 p.m. in California. And then it would have run an hour later, mountain time, and then an hour later, like central, and then east coast. It, does that do you what? So, I guess if there are no different time zones in the UK, Nigel didn't account for that in his script. Is Correct. That, is that over? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) The movie doesn't work for me. And I've really, you know, I've tried for years. And I think for for a while, I was just trying to be cool because now there is this camp of people who enjoy it. And I'm not taking away from that at all. I do think that there are reasons to enjoy this movie. I think that there are some really good ideas. Like I said, it's a great movie to look at. And I think it's well-directed and well-shot, decently acted. But, um... It doesn't work right for me. How do you feel? I agree. I think it has the ideas. It has it's the last little hurrah with the original Halloween team before they decided, you know what? Let's not do this. Sir. Uh, let's you know, let's walk away from this. Um, yeah, I would say the the pros that I could I could think of are just the enduring qualities of the aesthetic, the Dean Cundy cinematography. The music's not that great. It's just sort of, it's kind of like. I mean, it's it's Carpenter and Alan Haworth again, but there's no like defining theme like in the Halloween films, and it, it lacks the consistent paranoia and the scares. It doesn't quite have that going for it. So you're relying on characters who aren't that interesting, doing sort of pulpy character things that don't really work outside of a you know ten cent novel, ten cent you know paperback or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's relying on it's sort of relying on tropes that we've already seen that were done better in older movies. You know, I get, I get the influence on it, but it's not quite working, but it has the ideas. There's a lot to mine if they're going to go back. I know that I know they're itching to go back to it. And I'm sure there's a lot of fan fiction out there and theories that are just waiting to be developed into stories about the silver shamrock and the Michael Myers connected, all that sort of stuff. I'm sure it's there. Absolutely. because they, I mean, they went back and what was it, part six? They went to like Doctor Wynn. He was like the last character that was <laughs> that wasn't you know, utilized. So I'm yeah. like, it was like 
it's like it was so obvious who it was going to be <laughs> you know that was the last character literally right um but there's a lot they can do and, and utilize is it all going to work who knows but it might work better if it's more thought out than the shades of ideas that are that are hinted at here but i really think this film could have worked if it was had just had a stronger protagonist or if they had just swapped the roles and made ellie the driving force of this of the story because yes. it was her father who died and, and there's a mystery involving her father but she's kind of relegated to you know she's just the, the love interest and doesn't given a lot to do to the point where when the twist happens with her character you don't realize there's a change in her character <laughs> because that's who she was the whole time yeah you know she plays that same level the whole time um but i i i appreciate the aesthetics the masks um I I do think of it when you know Halloween because not my it's not my go to movie ever really at all. No. Um, but I think of you know the imagery. I have the shirt on. I have the you know, I love the the, the aesthetics of the mask. I think that's enduring. Whenever I see them in like the you know the stores, I see they, they have like figures out now, and they have any kind of imagery of the mask. It just feels like Halloween. Yeah. The movie itself, not so much. You know, yeah. it, it so it's just it has those little elements here and there. Maybe it needed a younger cast a young or something i think it maybe needed extra characters who were more endangered yeah for them to to make it more interesting um from the perspective of the trick-or-treaters perhaps something like that you know it needed it needed a little something not just you know every man uh <laughs> you know meets younger woman and right. sleeps with her like after, after three hours uh yeah. you know it's just it was just kind of like eh, there's there's nothing there so character-wise, but and and your villain is the most interesting character in the whole movie. That's you know because he has the most draw. He has a plot. He has he has a, a purpose. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, but does he? Uh, why does he want to kill children? We really. He's because he's bad. He's evil. That's it. You know. You're right. That's the answer. That's the answer. All right. On on Rick or Treat Horror <laughs> Cast, there's a rating system. A movie is either a trick, which means it's all right, or mm-hmm. it's a treat, which means you loved it. Or it is a mm-hmm. smell my feet, which means it sucks and you hated it. What <laughs> do you rate Halloween three season of the witch as? I'm gonna be totally honest because I know again we we talk about how there's there's like real diehard fans out there who celebrate this movie, love it. They'll they'll you know defend it to the death. But I'll give it a I'll be fair and give it a, a trick and say that it's it has element like I'm always a purist. Like see the movies in sequence, see the series. And then make make your own educated decision on whether or not you want to revisit it or whether it's good. Or you can at least go in knowing and understanding what their initial intention was with the series, um, and realize why Halloween Four was such a uh, welcome return to you know to the Michael Myers story. Um, but it, it has those lasting elements that you know we still refer we still reference like in a few days people are going to be sharing. On YouTube, eight more days till Halloween. It's gonna happen. Yes, I'm, pro- I'm gonna be one of them. Uh, <laughs> I know you say that. You're like, oh, no. you're like, I'm turning off my social nope, media. I'll do um, it too. I know I'll do it too. But it's just, it's that kind of, it's those little unifying elements that, without it, I think it could have easily just been a forgotten sequel. Um, it is a forgettable sequel. It, it is kind of dull and it drags. The characters are one note, and um, but if it weren't for those little aesthetic moments for Halloween, I don't think we'd still be talking about it so i give i'd give it a trick for anyone who hasn't seen it be curious check it out you may not you may not love it afterwards um but at least you, you saw it and now you'll know if they decide to mine that territory again in the future of the series you'll know where it all stems from 
but it's not it's not a great it's not it, it, you'll it's not a great <laughs> it's really it, you know even watching it today with adult eyes i was like huh it's not really doing it for me yeah. but those little nostalgic moments are are what are key to it so i'll, I'll defend the merch I'll, I'll buy the merch right right because <laughs> it's still part of it it you know it's so interesting i have in my notes multiple times i love the iconography the masks work for me they look they're so great those colors and exactly like you said the masks look like halloween the movie does not look like how the movie does not evoke fall or that's right that's right yeah yeah there's nothing spooky about this movie it's very not just the kills the movie itself is sterile and and clinical Mm -hmm. and i think that's why people can go to halloween four and it's like it's a reset and that opening says okay we're we're going back to fall we're going yeah. back to that i still remember seeing that in the theater that was my first theatrical halloween and you know you're sitting in the theater you're waiting for the theme song to hit and it it doesn't right? it's like it's like no we have to bring you back into this world and this time frame and you know the season and, and it does it beautifully like that yeah. that imagery i just i love that i haven't been i haven't been able to like go pumpkin picking or apple picking or anything. I haven't been out in, in that like a cornfield in a while. Uh, one of these days like I'll get back to that one of these seasons hopefully. But uh yeah I will watch those types of clips on YouTube just to put myself back into that 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 zone, you know. Yeah. So yeah. That's what it, that's definitely what's missing from this one. It's too sterile, too you know, it's cold. It's a it's a choice. It is a choice. Think, it's on purpose. You know, my problem with this movie is not that Michael Myers is not in it. That right. I can I can watch it objectively. I can embrace that for what it is. My complaints about this movie are with the movie itself. It yeah. this is maybe gonna, if it wasn't called Halloween. This is gonna be my first smell my feet ever on Rick or Treat Horror Cast. And I before this week when I, you know, studied this movie, I think I would have called it a trick. And then having um having sat through it multiple times this week and sitting with it and looking at it, I just don't think it works. And sure the merch yeah. is cute and I would if they weren't so expensive, hang all three masks from Trick or Treat Studios in my home. <laughs> but like I just don't it's not a movie that I plan to maybe ever revisit after this i don't know i'm not looking that far ahead this is officially my first it's... smell my feet on rick or tree podcast <laughs> i mean it's how i well you we like halloween ends right that's because it's kind of how i feel about halloween ends um like i don't love it either but uh if you want to see it just to complete the series you know and, and right see it once and then get over you know if you like it fine but I have a hard time saying I like Halloween ends because I think that it's a miss. I think that it's misguided and I can see what Mm -hmm. it could have been. And I, it it did nothing works, but for some reason I have this morbid fascination with it. A lot. Yeah. I mean, to me, I can listen to that boy harsher and credit song every day. I listen to it when I'm out walking. It's just, for me, that was my takeaway from the whole movie. Yeah. The end credit song. Um, Cause that was that that's belongs in a whole other movie, but it, it was like, if I'm going to get it from this one, fine. Oh, yeah. but that's the only thing I liked about it. Really. Corey was good. I thought the actor was good. I just didn't know. <sighs> yeah. It's, it's, it's such a mixed I bag. Love, you know? A year later now I'm seeing all of these think pieces coming out about reanalyzing Halloween ends and did we not give it a fair shot? And I'm like, I don't know guys. It's no, not, we gave it a fair not, shot. Yeah. It's not good, but it is interesting. It's worth talking about. Let me ask you this. If mm-hmm. Halloween three 
were not called Halloween three, if it were strictly called season of the witch, do you think it would have been a hit? Do you think it would have stood a better chance? And do you think we'd still be talking about it today? I don't even think season of the witch works with the film. I think not at it all. was called, <laughs> I think if it was called Salwin, but that wouldn't have sold on the marquee because people no. were like, people would be going Sam Hain, I'm buying tickets for Sam Hain. Yep. Um, you know, and we didn't learn the proper pronunciation until years later. Everyone was calling well, Dr. It. Loomis calls it Sam Hain in Halloween. That was his, yeah. And no one corrected him back then. So, nope. you know, uh, I think if it was, it's a, it's an interesting pro- plot, but to link it to Halloween, the series in any way, it, it's an interesting plot on its own, but I think if it were a sh- shorter story, yeah, maybe like a, t- a Tales from the Dark Side or something, I think that's where the story is because it's there's not a lot of movie there, no, because there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of building tension, there aren't a lot of set pieces, the characters are thinly drawn, um, the romance doesn't work, it's not convincing at all. Uh, they're you know. <sighs> the character the main character is kind of a cad and that was just because it was the 80s um it's not really like yeah i think it, if it was like a 30 minute it's a 30 minute idea stretch to a feature length you know there's there's stuff there but it's it leaves a lot you know so even even on its own i think, I think it would it would make a better short than an anthology and then just move on you know as as a halloween film no no i don't i don't think it works that was my long way so, sure no. but but then do you think all right if it were not attached to halloween do you think it would be a movie worth remembering do you think we would still know about it no no um no agreed i don't think so i don't i, I, I don't, don't think so i don't think that it has what it takes to have been lasting there's not a lot there yeah and I, I, for anyone that not knocking it but i'm saying anyone that really is like oh it's the best movie it's so great it's awesome um i feel like it depends. Maybe it depends on when you see it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it depends on you know, in like if you see this before you see the other films, or you saw you know part five and then saw three, or you know right. that 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 could that you know, it depends when when you're exposed to it and when you it first makes it you know leaves its lasting effect on you. But watching it now and just objectively, it's just like it wasn't really working from a narrative standpoint. Um, there's there's not a lot of tension, not a lot of intrigue. It's just kind of like it sits there and then the horror stuff doesn't it's sprinkled throughout but you feel like those are studio notes yeah it's like, okay we gotta like we gotta have something happen here someone's head got has gotta get ripped off when it happens they're effective yeah um you know it's the same thing with halloween too when you know you know it could have been even more suggestive and less scary even though the, the fog was the same way i think his his style was always very swift and suggestive because he comes from that sort of old school mentality mm-hmm. of, of the horror but when you're competing against like the Friday the 13th, of course, you have to add the extra effects. I think the effects in this movie are very effective and, and they're, they're cool. They're few and far between, but when they happen, they're effective. But I, I, outside of that, there's not a lot of excitement happening and the characters feel, you know, just dull and the plotting, the pacing is kind of dull. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it doesn't quite work, but oh. I say I say still see it because you know you might find that like I said it'll help people see where it stands in the series in the you know in the overall uh, franchise and they'll understand all the references that make their way around uh, 
the internet every year. So, yeah. you know, that's, and, that's, you know, I think it, it does inform the rest of the series. If this movie had been a hit, we would not have gotten Michael Myers back, you know? So right. yes, I yeah. do say, I, see it. I always say include it in your lineage for sure. You know, make mm-hmm. your own choice. I do recommend watching it. I do think that it's like a, um, it is a part of the genre that's really monumental and uh, mm-hmm. you know whether you're going to like it or not, I do think it's worth a watch. And I I do want to make it clear to my listeners who do love this movie, like no shade. I I see it. I get it. I see you. It just for me, it doesn't work. Like if there's a midnight screening somewhere, it's like ah, eh, I'm gonna do laundry that night or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like I'm, I'm probably gonna go to this 11 p.m. showing of When Evil Lurks. I would not go to oh, an yeah. 11 p.m. showing of Halloween three. <laughs> Oh man. All right. But Hey, Brian, it's been incredible having you on the show. I think I would love to have you back sometime when we talk about a movie that we both love for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool. This was fun. Will you tell my listeners where they can stalk you? Uh, yeah, I actually, I have a website, uh, briansmithhorror.com and uh, it has my Twitter and my Instagram on there as well. Um, I'm like Brian Smith, NYC, Brian Smith, NY, that type of thing, but you can click the links on my website. And uh, also follow New York City Horror Film Festival. Uh, that's nychorror.com. And we're on Instagram, we're on uh, Facebook. And uh, we'll be, it's uh, this December, December 7th through the 10th at Look Dine-In Cinemas on West 57th. So I hope to see you there. And our tickets and passes are now on sale. So uh, check out the schedule and check out the films. And yeah, come on down. So cool. I cannot wait to check it out. I'm actually, I took the whole weekend off. I'm super excited about it. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, cool. yeah. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Rick or Treat Pod, and on YouTube, check us out uh, at Rick or Treat Horrorcast. And that's all that I have. I want to wish all of my listeners and Brian a really wonderful and spooky and memorable and incredible Halloween. And we'll see y'all later, Spookies. See you later. Thank you. Thanks for coming, Rick or Treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre, with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. My website, rickertreat.com, is designed and maintained by Evelyn DeVere. The show's social media content is created by my evil minion and social media manager, Stanley Martin. The Rick or Treat logo was designed by Philip Romano. Contact information and links to these artists can be found in the episode description. Check them out, they're frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well, they're coming to get you, listener. <laughs> Thank you.